0: If you remember our previous study in the book of Genesis, uh, we watched God uh, reconfirm his promises to Abraham. Remember, God had made a massive promise to Abraham, and we'll revisit it here tonight because it's so pertinent to the story, in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord there in that previous chapter had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. The land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As the years ticked by after God made that promise, Abram was without even a child, a son let alone a great nation. He was far from becoming a great nation. He'd tried, according to the promise and the command of God there in Genesis 12, to be a blessing. And in our last study together in chapter 15, he'd cut a covenant, uh, or God had cut a covenant with Abram and promised Abram that he would do everything that he had previously said. Still, though Abram had the promise of God in hand, And though he believed God, as we saw in chapter 15, verse 6, he still needed to hold on in faith that one day he'd have biological descendants. Eventually, Abram's faith was tested and he stumbled. And that's really what chapter 16 uh, is about. It shows us the great father of faith struggling to walk by faith. In this little episode, we're going to see a man who's been justified by faith, battling to be sanctified by faith. And perhaps you can relate in your own walk with the Lord at times, saved by grace, but having a difficult time trusting the Lord and continuing to walk by faith in your everyday life and experience. Because it's one thing to believe, but it's another thing to live by faith. And this passage will show us a man battling for that life faith and in this passage we'll see that Abram is actually not alone in this struggle to walk by faith we're gonna see two other figures in this chapter behave poorly Sarai Abrams wife and Hagar their servant uh, will also waffle in ungodliness so what we have in this chapter really is twofold you could break it right in half basically In the first half of the chapter, we're going to see the ugly ways of man. And in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see the beautiful ways of God. That's why I've entitled this message, God's Ways Are Not Our Ways. You see, he is the hero of this chapter, uh, just like he is in all of the Bible. And in this section, we're going to see and learn more of who God is, And and what we'll find, I think, is stunning and beautiful. So the first half of this chapter, the ways of man, is found in chapter 16, verse 1 through 6. Let's read the first two verses to begin. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay, this whole episode, everything that unfolds in chapter 16, hinges on this shocking and scandalous suggestion from Sarai that Abram take Hagar, their Egyptian servant, To be his wife an additional wife okay this suggestion of course flowed out of their situation sarah felt that it was the lord who had prevented her from having children Uh, he was in his mid-80s she was in her mid-70s and keep in mind these are patriarchal numbers and they lived longer lives than we do but still they are older and in her infertility, which she thought God had put upon her, she felt justified in offering this idea to her husband. Now, I don't want to water down how foolish this proposal was. I'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, because it was really a terrible idea. But I do want you to know that it was not as shocking to Abram and Sarai as it is to us you see in the cultures all around them this type of behavior was acceptable and sometimes even expected it was the legal custom of the day for a barren woman to give her handmaiden or maidservant to her husband in order to have a child in her name Uh, the maid's first child in other words would be considered the first wife's child Uh, And like I said, sometimes it wasn't even merely an acceptable arrangement. Sometimes it was even put in the marriage contract itself. Uh, If the wife could not produce an heir, it was sometimes agreed upon ahead of time that she would provide a surrogate to her husband. Okay. But we already know where this is going. Even if you've never read Genesis 16 in your life, you know that something bad is about to happen. We know this is a bad idea though. The culture of their day might have embraced this idea. Common sense mixed with general revelation mixed, of course, with scripture helps us understand that this is going to end in total disaster. Everyone involved in this story, Hagar, Sarai, Abram, they're all adults. But the elements of sexual temptation, jealousies, divided loyalties, bitterness, regret, self-hatred, shame, and anger, they're all just way too easy to predict when Sarai gives this proposal. Though they're all trying to be very grown up about this situation, uh, human beings, and that's what they were, human beings cannot handle this type of situation well. Abram was meant for Sarah. Sarah was meant for Abram. And nothing that the culture said about doing things any other way than a monogamous and covenantal sexual relationship could change that reality. Okay, and this suggestion that I made It brings us to our first contrast between the ways of God and the ways of man. And we'll put it there on the screen for you, the first one, that it's flesh versus spirit. Flesh versus spirit. You see, Abram and Sarai tried to get the job done of having offspring through human ingenuity rather than wait on the promise of God. You know, Paul highlights this actually in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, when he said the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was born through promise. You see, Sarah and Abraham, they panicked. They couldn't see what God was doing, and they set out to get the job done in their own strength. And this wasn't their way of giving God their energies, you know, like God, you want us to use our minds to accomplish your will. No, it was a way for them to go outside of God's methods in an attempt to fulfill God's promises in their own might. You see, the temptation to get God's work done by the power of human ingenuity and the flesh is a strong temptation. But it never leads to lasting fruit. That's the thing. And it often causes ripples of pain. Abram's decision will end up creating generations of pain, which reverberate even to our modern era. But in the moment, he thought that he was simply helping God out. He he, he could wait no longer, so he felt that it was time to act. But the way of faith is often the way of waiting to peacefully trust God, that he'll get his purposes accomplished even when we think that he needs our help. Human ingenuity and energy often only mucks up the beauty of God's work. There's a passage I like in the Old Testament that I think exemplifies or pictures this really well. After years of captivity, Uh, The Israelites miraculously were brought back to the promised land. And their prophets predicted that they would be able to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The governor at the time was a man named Zerubbabel, and the high priest a man named Joshua. And I'm sure that both of them had their doubts about whether or not they'd get this massive job accomplished. Well, enter in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah had a vision uh, one day of two olive trees that had pipes shooting from them to golden lampstands. The oil from the olive trees flowed through the pipes into the golden lampstands and the fire of the lampstands then perpetually burnt. The angel who brought the vision to Zechariah asked him if he knew what these olive trees represented, and he said that he didn't. So the angel announced, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. That's the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. You see, what this was, was a promise to Zerubbabel that God would get the work accomplished by the power of his Holy Spirit. Yes, flowing through Zerubbabel, but it would not be done by Zerubbabel's own might or by his own power, but by the strength, the aid, the power, the might, the energy of the Holy Spirit. Of God God would be the one to get the work done and God wanted to do the same for Abram he wanted to fulfill his promises through Abram but by the power of the Holy Spirit not the arm of the flesh now I'm making a big deal out of this because this is quite often a problem for modern believers You know, a lot of times we turn to our own abilities to get the job done rather than patiently, in the Spirit, wait upon God. Then the flesh, when we're unwilling to wait, does its thing. And people find themselves in relationships that they shouldn't have gotten into because they're so impatient and they take matters into their own hands, sometimes causing a lifetime of relational pain because they would not wait. Or they get into ministries or start ministries that aren't bearing real fruit. They might even look fruitful, but it's artificial. It's something that's being done by the energy of the flesh. Or they enter into careers that they care little about because of a lack of waiting upon the Lord. All of this occurs because at some point, the flesh took over and waiting on God ceased see, when God is marginalized and edged out of the way that you do life, the results are disastrous. It's much better to go slow and allow him the space and time to fulfill his promises. Okay, let's read the second half of verse two before we move on. It says, and Abram, you know, after he heard that proposal from Sarai, listened to the voice of Sarai. Okay, Abram heard Sarai's proposal, and he listened to her voice, it says there in verse 2. Now, we're studying the book of Genesis, and it's been a while since we've been in Genesis chapter 3, but uh, this should remind us of the disastrous events of Genesis chapter 3. You see, in the first marriage, Eve had an idea that Adam went along with, and the results were terrible the consequences were terrible here a similar event occurs the wife has an idea that abram should not have consented to but he did and the consequences will again be terrible this leads us to the second way of man versus the way of god so often the husband will follow when he should lead that's our second one he should follow i mean he he will follow when he should lead now We should not infer from this statement that uh, any husband uh, would not want to, you know, listen to his wife. You know, we shouldn't infer from this that any husband would be wise to become a dictatorial leader in his marriage and family. Nor should we get the idea that married couples shouldn't talk and discuss their life direction together. No, when you marry, you become one flesh with your spouse. You're like a team in one sense. You're not only a team, but you are a team together. Any godly husband will discuss life and major decisions with his bride. If you're a married man, you should work hard to hear where your wife is coming from and learn her perspective. It says in First Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you're to learn about her. You're to dwell with her in understanding. This requires communication, working on things together, thinking about the future collectively. But additionally, a husband should not think that just because he's leading, that he's heading in the right direction. Oh, no, not at all. Many times in Abram and Sarai's life, Abram was fully leading, but he was going in in a direction that was disobedient, Uh, the wrong direction, a sinful direction even. And Sarai is actually held out in the New Testament as an example of a godly wife, partly because of that, her submission following Abram, even when he was being a total knucklehead. Still, just because a man is, Heading somewhere, leading, doesn't make that somewhere the right direction. So I'm not saying that either. But with all that said, we should see the danger of the reversal of these marital roles. Abram should have been leading his bride, but instead he followed. Paul said it this way But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the son submits to the father, the man submits to Christ, and the woman follows submits to her husband. Again, I cannot state enough that this does not permit or encourage a domineering tone in any way. You know, when Jesus led his disciples, it was as a servant who laid down his life. If anything, this servant leadership done correctly, it should be the more difficult of the roles. But it's the role that God has given to believing husbands and one that Abram neglected in a moment of weakness to perilous results. You know, as a pastor, I find that many marital problems are caused by passive men who treat their wives more like a mother figure someone who who they follow, someone whose lead they submit to. And it's true that sometimes wives like this are all too willing to take the lead in their relationship. But the results, honestly, are disastrous. Children in homes like these rarely walk with God in the future. Uh, The couple eventually grows apart from one another. And the man rarely ascends to the heights for which God made him. And the wife is often simply frustrated in life. I think it would be good for the church to more frequently highlight the marital order. I was talking with Christina uh, recently. We have been having these little date nights together even during the coronavirus shutdown that we're all in. Uh, we leave the girls at home we put in a mobile order on our chipotle app and we drive to chipotle pick up some food and go down to the beach sit in our car eat chipotle watch the sunset and just talk and hang out before we go home and spend time with a fire in the fireplace and our own little special part of the house together and we were kind of chatting about a few different friends that we had over the years who gotten married, and it just seemed like a funky relationship, an unequal yoke. Uh, One set of friends who are, by the grace of God, doing well now, got off to a real difficult start in their marriage. But it really wasn't a surprise, knowing what we knew. They were in college together. She was actually doing his homework for him. What that communicated was, this is not a real man. This is a man that's looking to follow, not a man that's looking to lead. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, the Spirit got a hold of him uh, six or seven years into their marriage, and he began to be the leader that God had called him to be. But it should not have surprised this woman that this man's man switch did not suddenly flip on on the day of their wedding. No, that's not the way it works. And I asked Christina, I said, how, because she had dated a few guys here and there. And I asked her, what made you want to avoid those guys? What made you know what you were looking for? And she said, honestly, it was because I was taught in the churches I grew up in the word submit from Ephesians chapter five. And I read it for myself in God's word. And that word submit so freaked me out that I knew I didn't want anybody who didn't have the character that I would want to follow. And it's not like I had my life altogether or anything like that. I didn't have a master's degree. I didn't have a lot of money in the bank account, but she felt at least when she looked at me that there was character there that she could say, I can follow this guy. And I think if this was communicated more often in the church, many young women would save themselves from so much pain understanding what they are getting into when they enter into a marriage covenant. Let's move on, though, to verse 3. I promise we're not going to take as long on the rest of this chapter as we did for those two, first two verses. But it says in verse 3, So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Okay, in these verses, we see that everything went according to Sarai's plan. And Hagar, the Egyptian servant, she became pregnant. And she's presented as a dangerous figure, uh, especially to the people who read the book of Genesis first, the people of Israel. Because they had come out of Egypt and she is called Hagar the Egyptian. Uh, They were not supposed to go back to Egypt. So the fact that Hagar was Egyptian is meant to warn us that she might be problematic. Now she's presented as an enemy when she began in verse 4 to look with contempt on her mistress. You know, she was elevated, in other words, with pride. And she began to look down on Sarai as a result. This leads us to another way of man versus the way of God. Number three, pride versus humility. Pride versus humility. You see, Hagar was beginning to see herself as Sarai's superior. Her pregnancy had become her identity. Now, to be clear, it was very unfair for Hagar to even have been put in that situation in the first place. And God is going to, in this chapter, show her great love and great favor. But for a moment, here, she caved in to pride. She began thinking that God had blessed her and now the family heir was in her womb. And she began seeing herself as privileged in status. And Abram had, of course, done nothing to stop her from having this attitude rather than respond to her pregnancy with humility hagar allowed a rivalry to develop and grew prideful against sarai oh this is so often the way of mankind you know a little success a little blessing uh, a little uh, fortune can go a long way in making us arrogant and proud individuals rather than humbly rejoice and the favor that God has shown us, we strive for more, more status, more importance, more esteem. Now, this is so unbecoming. Instead, we should follow what places like 1 Peter 5 tell us Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It's just so interesting as you watch human life unfold, how little it can take for a person to feel so prideful in their heart. It, it really doesn't take much. It doesn't even have to be real success for a person to feel pride within their heart. Now, Sarai, verse 5, said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Okay, here in verse five, this is not Sarai's best moment. Uh, Remember, this whole thing was her idea. It was her proposal. But here she claims that Abram had done wrong to her, and, and he had, but she was complicit in this as well. But now she is realizes that she's being looked on with contempt by Hagar. And so she calls on the Lord to judge between Abram and herself. This leads to a fourth contrast, the way of man versus the way of God. Anger, which is what Sarai expressed, versus repentance, which is what she should have expressed. You see, this is way too often the way of man. We want to do things our way, according to our plans. And then when things don't work out well, we become angry and we call on God to fix things up. Now, you know, there's a, there's little, if any, repentance in this episode, Sarah is hardened. She's angry at Abram. She's angry at Hagar. And maybe she's even a little bit angry at God. But she does not appear at all though, to be angry at herself. She does not humbly recognize the chaos that she, at least in part, created. You see, as readers, we see how everyone in this story is complicit. Sarah's idea was godless and terrible. Abram's willingness to go along with the plan was foolish and perhaps even lustful. And Hagar's prideful reaction to her pregnancy only served to make things worse. But through it all, no one repented. No one humbled themselves. Instead, Sarai is an emblem of all of them when she grew angry in her heart. Listen, when we make a mess of our lives, it is important for us to acknowledge it and repent it before God and man. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Abram here continued on uh, his determined course of uh, following Sarai's lead. You know, she comes to him. She's angry. She says, you did this to me. You got to deal with Hagar. And rather than step up and lead and intervene and say, look, this is unnecessary. Uh, We made this mistake. We need to take care of this poor girl. Instead, he said to Sarai, do to her as you please. Hagar was now defenseless against the onslaught of Sarai's wrath. And uh, as a result, she then fled into the wilderness. And this is another uh, evidence or another example of the ways of man. Apathy, which is what Abraham displayed, versus intervention, which is what he should have done. He should have intervened. On Hagar's behalf, You see, Abram could have stopped Sarai's persecution of Hagar, but he didn't. Uh, and I think it was apathy, apathy that made matters worse. You see, godly people were called to intercede, were called to intervene. Uh, we're not to apathetically look at the world around us, but Abram apathetically followed Sarai to go on her rampage against Hagar. It's just a very sad episode. And it's not hard to see the problems of this whole episode, is it? You know, they operate in in the flesh rather than wait for the promise of God. Abram followed his wife, negating his leadership role. Hagar was lifted up with pride, which only furthered the problems. And Sarai responded with anger, not repentance, and lashed out against Sarai. And it all started, though, by departing from the way of faith. This is what made Abram who he is. He believed God. The second that they waffled and ceased trusting God, a big problem became a bigger problem. Uh, And uh, things got worse and worse and worse. A chain of causes and effects was rolled out. The domino was tipped, so to speak, and they just kept tumbling and falling. And everyone in this episode, Abram, Sarai, Hagar, they all have some fault in the event. So that's the ways of man. I hope you're not too discouraged by that. It's the sadder part of the story. But now we get to see the ways of God in the second half of this chapter. Number two, the ways of God, verse 7. Through 16. It says in verse 7 and 8, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Okay, here we have something interesting. The first mention in the Old Testament of this figure called the Angel of the Lord in verse 7. Now later in this episode, this angel is going to be identified with God. Hagar is going to call him a God of seeing. She'll refer to this Angel of the Lord as a God of seeing. And the rest of Genesis is going to build on this connection between the angel of the Lord and God himself. Then, after the law was recorded, other Old Testament books continue to blur the lines between the angel of the Lord and Yahweh, or God himself. For example, in Judges chapter 6, in the passage about Gideon, the angel of the Lord is considered to be God in that episode. Uh, In Judges chapter 13, in the Samson episode, the same comparison is made the angel of the Lord with God. All through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord receives worship because he's considered divine. The thing is, the angel of the Lord is also, at the same time as he is compared to God, called God, worshiped like God. He is also seen as distinct from God throughout the Old Testament. For instance, later in Genesis, when Abraham tries to find a bride for Isaac, he tells his servant that the God of heaven would send his angel to help him on his quest. He said, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Okay, because this angel is often spoken of as divine, but is also spoken of as distinct from God, many have concluded that the angel of the Lord is a theophany of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, to put it more simply, the second member of the Trinity Jesus uh, came to Earth uh, as a baby boy around the turn of the first century, and though that occurred, he seems to have appeared in other forms throughout the Old Testament era. So we're going to see the Angel of the Lord as we continue on in our journey through the Old Testament. But let me talk to you about who God is in this episode. Uh, it's the contrast of found versus Lost, found versus lost. See, notice what the angel of the Lord did. He found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. Now, based on the geography that's mentioned, and it's hard to determine with great specificity, but based on the geography and some of the landmarks that are mentioned in this chapter, and because of her ancestry, remember, she was Egyptian, it seems like what Hagar was doing was fleeing back to Egypt. A very natural thing for a young pregnant woman to do when she's there on the run, go back home. It's hard to say how long she's been on the run at this point, but well out there in the wilderness, she found a spring of water. It says in verse 7. And it's a fascinating movement and one filled with imagery that ancient Israel would have understood. Hagar ran to Egypt and they were to run From Egypt. She was oppressed by her master, uh, just as they had been oppressed by Pharaoh, their master. She fled into the wilderness, and they had also fled into the wilderness. And out there in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord defended her and would also defend them, even by granting them the miraculous provision. Of water, You see, Hagar, it seems, is no longer lost but found. God went into the wilderness and found his wandering sheep. He brought her back into the fold. And this is who God is. You know, I'm talking to you tonight about the difference between God's ways and man's ways. Well, God is one who in his nature loves to find that which is lost. He likes to look for people that are destitute those who don't belong, and bring them home to himself. And even now, right now, many of you, if you're listening to this sometime around the recording of this teaching, many of you are alone, uh, by yourself, even without friends or family as you shelter in place. And maybe in a small degree, you can relate to Hagar out there in the wilderness by herself. God found her in that destitute condition and God can find us in our solitary confinement. You see, God sees you. He knows when you're alone and isolated. And I want you to notice he's the God of the wilderness. You know, he went out into that wild place where she was lost and he found her. And when we are lost, he seeks us. He finds us. And as we learn in Luke 15 and the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, he rejoices when he finds us and brings us home to himself. Let's go on to see what else happened between Hagar and God out there in the wilderness. It says in verse 9, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot... Be numbered for multitude. Okay, now this is interesting because what God tells Hagar to do is to return to her mistress and submit to her in verse 9. Now, this would have been a very difficult thing for Hagar to do, don't you think? Um, You know, Sarai, of course, had not behaved righteously, she'd even been vengeful and angry. But God wanted Hagar to surrender herself to Sarai's leadership. If she did, great blessings would flow into her life. And I point this out because this is another aspect of who God is. People like to flee, but God so often wants us, number two, to submit. You see, this is often his way. He calls for citizens to submit to difficult governments. He calls for wives to submit to even difficult husbands. He calls for people to submit to difficult trials. And in the midst of difficulty, we're supposed to trust him. As we surrender to the Lord in the midst of pain, we will discover his great blessing upon our lives. I've told this story before, but I always think of it with this word, submit, about a time in my life where for a couple of years I was called to serve under a pastor that I, at first introduction and our first few months working together, I just felt we weren't compatible with each other. I was respectful, as respectful as I could be. I was, you know, deferential and kind and all of that. But I knew that I just couldn't really work with and under this particular manner, at least that was my thought or my feeling. And so privately, quietly, again, respectfully, with great kindness, I tried to just personally get my affairs in order, prepare a handoff of my responsibilities, and look for another opportunity in the body of Christ in some other part of our state or nation or world. And as I was having a few different conversations, seeking out different opportunities that might have been out there. One morning, I was reading in Proverbs 27, verse 18, and it said this simple line, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. And I'll be honest with you, when I read that, it was as if it jumped off the page and into my heart. I knew that the Lord was using this Proverb to show me that in the same way that a person who works on their fig tree and tends it and cares for it, prunes it when it needs it, waters it, fertilizes it, tends it, eats the fruit from it, they benefit because of that service. God was showing me that if I served this man and honored him and you know took care of him as best I could as an assisting pastor, that I would somehow eat the fruit of that relationship. I'm so thankful I did because uh, the lessons that I began to learn from that man were so monumental in shaping me into who I am today. And I en- ended up gaining his trust and replacing him here in the church. So I am very thankful for uh, the Lord's call like he gave to Hagar to submit during times of difficulty. Now in verse 11, it says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Here's another thing that God does. Sarai was barren, but God, he blesses. That's the third thing. Blessed versus barren. You see, here we, we learn that God would bless Hagar for her submission to Sarai. She was not barren. She would inv- uh, he would involve himself with her and also her offspring. Uh, they would not be able to be numbered for multitude, he says in verse 10. Her baby would turn into massive amounts of descendants. You see, God is promising Hagar that she will be a major matriarch in her own right. Uh, though not um, not the mother of the child of promise, that role would still be reserved for Sarai and her son Isaac. Hagar would have many descendants of her own. Uh, she would soon have a son named Ishmael, and he would have a bit of an unruly and uh, independent spirit. That's why God said in verse 12 that he'd be called a wild donkey, of a man so if you have a if you know a friend like this you could just start saying that to them you are a wild donkey of a man all this should have shown sarai abraham and israel how perfectly god is capable of multiplying descendants you see he didn't need their help he didn't need abram's help sarai's help he could do it all on his own if he could take a beaten down persecuted single mother and make a great people from her Then imagine what he could do through the child of promise and the father of faith in Abram. Now much has been made of the generational problems that the Ishmaelites have caused for Israel. Even today, distant descendants of Ishmael cause trouble for the distant relatives of Isaac, uh, Abram and Sarai's eventual son. Later in Genesis, Joseph, Sarai's great-grandson, is going to be taken to Egypt by a band of Ishmaelite traitors. So even in Genesis, the trouble between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are stirred up. But I wanted to point out to you, number four, that God hears versus God ignores. God hears. You see, the name Ishmael, that's what it means. God hears. This explains why God told Hagar you should call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This is another one of the ways of God. He found Hagar. He blessed her for her submission to Sarai, but he'd also heard Hagar's plea. She would apparently been crying out to God while in her pain. You see, God is not one to ignore pleas for mercy. This was a message for Hagar, but also for Abram and Sarai. God heard their pleas for a son. He had made a promise, and he was going to work on their behalf. And look, God hears you. I don't know how to say it any other way. It's important to recall this, especially in times of pain. I wonder how many individuals in our world right now are currently enduring their own Hagar moment. They feel alone in the wilderness, and without hope. And in their destitution and despair, God hears their humble cries for mercy. His ear is open. He listens. And all of this would have greatly encouraged the original Israelite readers. You know, they were suppressed by Pharaoh, and as a result of that suppression, they had cried out to God. And it took a long time, from the moment that they prayed to the moment that Moses showed up along with all of the plagues. But eventually, Moses did come, and God answered their prayers. You see, God hears. All right, let's move on in the text. In verse 13, it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here, I have seen him who looks after me. Here, Hagar was amazed at God and his promise. And in her amazement, uh, she did something really incredible. You notice that there in verse 13, she named God. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. She called him that because she was overwhelmed that he had looked after her. You see, God sees. He does not ignore. That's our fifth thing. God sees. He does not ignore. Not only does God hear, but God sees. So she called God the one who sees. Now this would have been shocking for the people of Israel to read. They knew about the Ishmaelites. And here the mother of the Ishmaelites named God. This is the only example in the Old Testament of someone giving God a name. She wants to invoke God's name in the future. So she gives him a name. You're the God of seeing. It's just an amazing thing. So Hagar knew God and knew that God heard her and that God saw her. She envisioned God as the great provider to whom she could turn. And listen, I want to remind you of that during this season that that we're in. God is your great provider, as Paul said in Philippians 4, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He might provide a little bit through a government check, He might provide a little bit through a new job or promotion or a little side hustle. But God, he wants to provide for you. Now, it's important to notice how Hagar came by this incredible revelation. You know, where did she learn that God is the God who hears and that God is the God who sees? I I have to remind you, she learned this in the wilderness. She learned this well in great pain and difficulty. She was on the run. She was beaten down. She was persecuted, and it was there that God revealed himself to her. She saw great things about God while she was in the biggest trial of her life. You know, James says in James 1 that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces Steadfastness. Now, it's not that we're glad that the trial is there, as if somehow we have a sadistic enjoyment of pain. No, it's that in that pain, at least we can count, uh, account, attribute, consider, believe that there's something joyful about the trial because we know that God is producing character in us as a result. Okay, let's close out our study together in verse 14 and following. It says, therefore, the well was called ber lahai Roy, which means God sees and provides for our needs. It lies, it says in verse 14, between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The final contrast I want you to see about God, God's ways and man's ways is this grace versus law. It's hard to gather this from this passage, but Paul actually used this whole episode that we just studied tonight as an illustration in the book of Galatians. Uh, He was dealing in Galatians with a group of people who thought that they could be justified or sanctified by their works. Law-keeping was the way to God, or at least that's what they thought. So Paul showed them how the law was originally uh, written many centuries after the promise was given to Abraham. The promise was first, the law was a distant second. So Paul then took this episode, and in an interesting allegorizing of this passage, he said this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. That would be Isaac who came later. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I'll just say to you, uh, some of the elements that Paul is quoting them, from, come from a later part of the story of Ishmael. And the second thing I'll say to you is, if you ever hear me allegorizing the Old Testament like Paul did right there, uh, please ask me to stop. Only Paul could get away with something so brilliant as that. What he was saying was that Hagar and Ishmael, they were allegories of trying to be approved by God through the keeping of the law or your own Works, Abram and Sarah trying to produce the righteousness of God. You just can't do it. You have to receive it. Just as they received Isaac, you must receive the righteousness of God in Christ. So the promise would not be helped along by the works of Abram and Sarai. God would do the work, God would fulfill his promise, because God's ways are not man's ways, and God's ways are best. And so let's Learn from this story and trust him all the way in our lives. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week.